We are in the Ten Commandments. We've been going through the Ten Commandments in Exodus 20 now for about six weeks, six, seven weeks. And uh, you might recall uh, some of the first commandments. So that number one was, you shall have no other gods before me. There's one God, and he needs to be the center of our life. You shall have no other gods before me. Number two talks about idolatry. Uh, back then, it was like making carved images. We know today, maybe in some countries, they make carved images, but it's more of a, a heart issue today. We have idols sometimes that we need to surrender to God. Number three was don't take the name of the Lord in vain. And I loved what Jared said about this. I always thought um, that taking the Lord's name in vain was actually like saying, oh my, you know, three-letter word, right? Oh my goodness, G-O-D, whatever. Um, but he said, well, take, when you think about it, the Hebrew word is actually carry. So it's like taking something from one place to another place. It's like carrying something. So what God was saying wasn't don't say oh my G-O-D, although that might not be a great thing to do either, but he was saying, when you wear the name of Jesus, when you, have, when you say, tell the world that you're a Christian, that's like on your, your chest out here, and you're carrying my name with you when you go out into the world, when you go into the workplace, when you go to school, when you go into relationships, you're carrying my name, and he says, don't carry my name in vain, honor me in how you're carrying my name into all these places. So I, lo- I love that, that was a new thing for me. Um, and then the fourth one, remember the Sabbath. So um, Pastor Jared and Zach Clark and I meet uh, twice a month for accountability and sometimes confessing of sin in our lives, but also just encouraging each other to, to, to walk as godly husbands and fathers. And uh, we were meeting, and Jared asked me, you know, what will you be doing when you teach this coming week? And I said, well, I'll be continuing the Ten Commandments, talk about honor your father and mother and I might get into murder. And Zach just heard the second part of that. He's, he looked over at me like, what did you just say you might get into murder? I'm going to be teaching on murder this morning, not getting into it. The day job pays just fine. Um, so, so let's pray. Lord God, we ask that you would teach us through your word today, that you would teach us, that your spirit would teach us. And we ask, God, that where there's a little bit of course correction, Lord, that you'd correct our course if we're getting a little bit off the path, Lord, we ask that you teach us that. And God, if we're going 180 degrees the opposite direction, God, we ask that you'd shake us a little bit. Your word says that you can even rebuke us. And if God, if there's anywhere in our hearts where we're going the wrong direction, we ask that you'd rebuke us. But for all of us here, God, we ask that you would train us in righteousness so that we'd be thoroughly equipped for every good work in this world. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, honor your father and mother that your days may be long in the land the Lord your God has given you. So first, what does it mean? What does honor mean? Uh, so the Hebrew word, uh, which I'm not going to try to pronounce, uh, for honor can also mean to be weighty or to be heavy. So as I was thinking about this, you know, honoring, to be weighty, to be heavy, other words that came to mind were words like emphasize your father and mother. Or consider your father and mother. Or give attention to your father and mother. So we want to honor our parents, the Bible says. And the Bible is full of commands to give others honor. So this isn't alien to the Christian. Romans 12.10 says, honor one another above yourselves. 
Romans 13 talks about honoring the governing authorities, so the civil government. And then 1 Peter 2.17, it says, honor everybody. So for Christians, this is something that we do. It's something that should pour out of us is showing honor to other people. But here, in the Ten Commandments, the priority of it, the placement of it is very interesting to me because you've got basically five things that say how to honor God, and then right beneath that says honor your father and mother. You know, that, I was kind of raised, like, if, if there's a priority list of, like, how do you honor the people in your life, like, it's God, then it's my wife, right? That's kind of how I thought as a kid it was supposed to go. But here it says actually honor God first and then consider about how you can honor your parents. So how do we do it? How do we honor our fathers and mothers? Uh, there's... There's a lot of examples in the Bible. I'm not going to give an exhaustive list. I'm going to give four ideas of how we can honor our father and mother. Number one, if you're taking notes, show respect to them. Show respect. Leviticus 19.32 says, rise in the presence of the aged and show respect for the elderly. So if I'm sitting down here after church and on my backside and somebody else comes up and greets me that might be a little bit older than me, I can stay on my backside and cross my arms and look up at them, or I can stand up, I can shake their hand, I can look them in the eyes and show that I'm considering them as an elder in my life. And we do the same thing with our parents. So first, we show respect to them. Second, we show humility before them. And back a couple of chapters in Exodus 18, we see Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, visiting Moses and the people of Israel. And it says that Moses, he bowed down and he kissed him. He showed humility before his father-in-law. Not just his father, but his father-in-law, which is harder for some of you, right? Um, and don't say amen to that. <laughs> so bowing and kissing people, that might, might not be something we do in our culture today, but we can ask God, God, how can you give me a bowed heart heart of humility before my parents. Thirdly, we obey them. Now, there's not a, not a lot of youth in the, in the building this morning. They're all upstairs. But we, we typically don't think of this in, uh, you know, like a, a grown parent giving a grown adult a command to do something, right? We typically see this for our kids that are living under our roof, right? But it says obey them. Ephesians 6.1, it says, children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. And you know what? It's not self-serving to teach your kids this, because they need to learn that. Because when they go out into the world, they need to understand that there's a God, there's a Father in heaven that they need to obey. And when they're under your roof, they need to learn to obey you too. It's not self-serving. So do we always obey our parents? Well, if your parents are asking you to do something that directly conflicts with God's word, like rob a bank, no. <laughs> that was supposed to be. <laughs> Don't rob a bank, guys. Like, wait. <laughs> okay, lastly, uh, how can we honor our father and mother? The last thing I have here is provide for them. I learned this as an adult or at least it kind of sprang to life more as an adult as I read the Bible. It says in 1 Timothy 5.8, 1 Timothy 5.8, but if anyone does not provide for his relatives, and especially the members of his household, 
It says he's denied the faith and he's worse than an unbeliever. So providing for our parents is actually something that, is, that we should be considering. So how can we provide for them? Well, one of the ways that is very practical is if they're, if they're older and they don't have financial means, you reach into your pocket and provide something for them. Um, we provide for the homeless. We provide for other people in need. We give to the church. But we also show honor to our parents that they need something. We got to be here for them. Maybe some of us don't have financial means or we don't have anything to really share. So for, some, for others, it might just mean giving of our time, help them around the house as they get older, maybe uh, provide care for them. Because the person who desires to honor God is going to look for ways to honor their parents. So provide for them, obey them, show humility before them, and show respect to them. So why? Why do we honor our parents? Well, it says this in the second half of the passage, and Paul observes this in Ephesians 6.1. It says that this is the first command with a promise. What's the promise? Long days, that you, that you live long in the land. And so there's actually a benefit from honoring our father and mother. Now, um, some, though, would probably read this and they're like, oh, gosh, but do you know my parents? I don't mean that jokingly. I mean, some people actually have had parents that have been hurtful. Um, and the Bible says, honor them? How do I honor somebody I don't respect? Wow, that's a big one. And I, I'm going to make this simple. I don't know the, the specific answer to your specific situation. I'm sure if we were having coffee together, I'd encourage you, and there'd be some ways that I could encourage you in how to do that. Um, but I do know that by accepting Jesus into your heart, this is called Christianity 101, accepting Jesus into your heart and letting the Holy Spirit do his work of restoring all those scars and any brokenness and coming face to face with the extraordinary love of God the Father, he can bring healing and he can give you strength to show honor to your mom and dad. He can do that. We see another answer to this in the gospel story. Again, if you're taking notes, Romans 5.8 is one of the coolest verses in the Bible. It says that God shows his own love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Hang with me for a second. So when I turned my back on God, so when, when I was in rebellion against God, and everything that he owed me, or the only thing he owed me, was punishment for my sin, so when my sin separated me from fellowship with God the Father, he sent his son to pay the price for my sin and for your sin to allow us to have fellowship with him again. So basically, when I didn't deserve anything from God, actually when I, when I deserved the least from God, that's when he gave his son to reconcile that relationship with him. It is the call, therefore, of the Christian to give what is not deserved because it's the character of our God to give us what we could never earn. And when we give what's not deserved, when we give love to the unlovable, and when we give respect to the disrespectful, even if it's our parents, 
we carry the name of the Lord well. So honor your father and mother. Exodus 20.13, very next verse. You shall not murder. Murder. Okay, so if you're like me, you get to like the first five commandments, have no other gods before me, don't have any idols in your heart or real idols, physical or heart idols, carry my name well in everything you do in the world. Remember the Sabbath. When I think of all those, I kind of think, man, I can kind of grow in all those areas. But don't murder? I crushed this one. I do such a good job not murdering people. I cannot murder people in my sleep. And there were Jews, when Jesus was talking about this, actually, so he brought it up another couple thousand years later after the Ten Commandments were given, and there were Jews that had that same attitude. When they read a commandment, it's like, yeah, check, I got this one. And they get a little puffed up. Keep another commandment over here. Yeah, I I think as I read that, I kept that. Check. Woo! I'm feeling good. And we can get puffed up when we do that. And if you ever read a biblical commandment and your response is, I got this one, be careful. (laughs) Proverbs 16, 18. It says, pride goes before destruction and a haughty or an arrogant spirit before a fall. So if you start over here with pride and arrogance and you're walking down this path, if you start on the path of pride and arrogance, you're going to end up with destruction. You're going to end up with a fall. So if your flesh is ever, if, if you ever have that response in your heart that I got this one, ask God to show you in humility, God, what's something deeper you're trying to teach me here? 2 Corinthians 3.6 um, shines some light on this also. It says, God has made us to be sufficient ministers of a new covenant, a new way. Not of the letter, but of the spirit. For the letter kills, but the spirit gives life. The letter kills, but the spirit gives life. So when there's something that you're reading and you're like, I just wanna follow it just as it's written, God would say, actually there's a spirit beneath this that you need to understand. And pray for understanding as you're reading God's word. So the the letter kills, but the spirit brings life. And Jesus opened up the spirit of this commandment. If you can flip over to Matthew 5 now. Matthew 5, 21. So Jesus said, You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. And they're like, yep, heard that one, got it, check. Preach, Jesus, I got that one. But he says, but I say to you that everyone, we lost power or something, it's fine. I don't need a spotlight. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. 
Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. Strong words, Jesus. So Jesus said that murder starts in the heart. Don't murder, but murder starts in the heart. So if I'm over here, I've got some bitterness, I've got some anger. I'm not telling anybody about it. I'm holding on to it. Got a grudge. That person that keeps ticking me off and I keep holding on to it. I can't stand that person. Anger, bitterness, rivalry. That's the spirit of murder. So don't murder is a little bit bigger than that. And he goes on. This is, again, Jesus talking in verse 23. He says this, so if you are offering your gift at the altar, so basically if you're the altar, that was like um, the Jews had an altar in their uh, synagogue where sacrifices were offered before God. So he says, if you're basically in the middle of an act of worshiping God, and there you remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift. First, go and be reconciled to your brother then come off your gift. This is incredible. So God the Father is so desiring that you and I be reconciled to one another, that you be reconciled to your boss, your wife, your parents, your kids, your cousins, your friend, your neighbor across the street. He's so desiring that we be reconciled to one another that he would rather forego being worshipped until you've reconciled. And I, I think you and I can kind of get that as parents. Like if I have four kids, and if one of my kids like picked up a two-by-four and whacked the other guy in the face and turned to me and said, oh, I love you, Daddy, I'd be like, what, <laughs> what kind of love is this, right? In James, it says, with the same mouth, you curse man and praise your Father in heaven. So being reconciled is huge for the Christian, And this isn't easy at all. Um, 2 Corinthians 5.16, again, if you're taking notes, this is an awesome one. It says, from now on, therefore, we regard nobody according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. And all this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry, the mission of reconciliation. So God, the great reconciler, reconciled reconciled the entire world to himself. And he said, now you guys go and do the same thing. Step into the brokenness and reconcile in my name. So where the commandment in Exodus forbids the taking of life, which is true, don't murder is still true, there's a spirit over here that comes behind that where God says, hey, but I think maybe all (laughs) y'all, he wasn't from Texas, but if he was, he would have said that. Maybe all of us need to think about what's the relationship in my life that I need to reconcile So I'd like to ask you, when was the last time you actually tried to reconcile a relationship? Have you had a 
hard relationship with your boss, with a, with a mom or dad, with a child, a neighbor. Um, if you do, but you're not quite sure if you do, or if you're like, ah, I don't know where I'm at with that, uh, bring it up to your spouse. Talk to your spouse about it. If it is your spouse, <laughs> that'd be awkward, but maybe that'd be... <laughs> maybe bring it up to your small group. If you've have, had a rough relationship with your boss, bring it up in community. Get wisdom. Have other people pray for you. God wants us to be reconciled to one another. We worship the great reconciler of relationships. Amen? Exodus 20, 14. I'm going to keep going on. I'm going to, I'm going to end on Exodus 20, verse 14. Don't get too excited. That it might take me a couple minutes on this one. It says, you shall not commit adultery. Again, we're like, okay, good. Got this one. No murder, no adultery. Feeling good about myself, Ben. Thank you very much. What is adultery? Adultery. Here's a technical definition. It's consensual, extramarital sex by someone who's married with someone who's married or single. Sorry. And it hurts people. <sighs> extramarital sex by someone who's married with someone else who's married or single. So first it's consensual. So we're not talking about rape here. Uh, it involves someone who's married now, there's also a close cousin to this act that the Bible also forbids. It's called porneia. Porneia. So we get some modern words from that term. That's the Greek word, by the way. You won't find that in the Bible. That's a Greek word, porneia. But we have other words today that, that, that come from that. Maybe you've heard of this term called pornography. Ruins a lot of lives today. Porneia. So we see this in 1 Corinthians 6, 9. Porneia is sometimes translated as fornication. What's fornication? Well, that's basically this very similar to adultery. It's consensual sex between two people that aren't married. So the only difference is that one of the people isn't married, or both the people aren't married. So sometimes we think of premarital sex or extramarital sex. It's like, man, how many times is he going to say sex in this sermon? <laughs> Last time I taught was on marriage, so it's like I could talk about that a lot. So, so sometimes it's translated as fornication. Other times it's just translated more broadly as sexual immorality. So, so some people might say, oh, gosh, I'm off the hook now for fornicating. Sometimes it's not translated that way, so fornication is okay. But actually, other, other ways it gets translated in the ESV, this is the translation that you're in right here if you're, you have the blue and white Bible, it's more broadly, it's more broad than just fornication. It says sexual morality. So when we start in the heart with sexual immorality, when we start down the road of sexual immorality, we end up with fornication. And if we keep going down that road, adultery is further down the road. And if you can keep going down that road, you get a bunch of other messed up stuff that our world is dealing with today. And it starts way back here with sexual immorality. Don't commit adultery. 
but it starts with sexual morality. I'm way off of my notes, I think. Let's see, where was I supposed to go? So, so the Bible commands against adultery because it harms the marriage relationship, which is the human relationship that God gave as a picture of his self-sacrificing, always giving kind of love. And he says, don't mess up my picture. Don't misrepresent me and don't carry my name wrongly in the way that you express yourself sexually. But he's just talking about the adulterer, right? So if you're married, I really believe that God wants you to have a fulfilling marriage. This isn't a your best marriage now kind of a talk. I know that you're going to have a rocky go of it at times. We're human. We're sinful. We go through seasons of hardship where it feels like our marriages are a little lifeless. But I think that God wants us to have a fulfilling marriage. God said in the beginning that a man would leave his father and mother and that he'd hold fast to his wife. He'd cleave, he'd cling to, our other translation, other words that they're translated that way. Cling to, right? And if you've been married, you know that walking through culture today, they're not a big fan of marriage. It's like sometimes it gets rocky, you have to cling together so they don't break you up. Off my notes again, guys, bear with me. God wants us to have a fulfilling marriage. Man and, a man would leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and it says that the two would become one flesh. One flesh. So God wants us to experience the joy of intimacy and the fulfillment of unity in marriage. It's beautiful. But just like Eve was deceived by the serpent in the garden, so maybe you remember the story, it's like in Genesis 3, the serpent made her believe that God was keeping something good from her when he told her and Adam to not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, right? So he said, he put them there in the garden of Eden, he said, hey, you can have anything. Just this one thing you can't have fruit from this tree of knowledge of good and evil. And if you eat of it, you're going to die. So Satan shows up on this scene. It says the serpent, but the father of lies shows up on the this, on this screen, or on your page, rather. And he starts with a seed of doubt. He said, did God really say? Did God really say that? And she said, yeah. I mean, you're making me doubt myself now, but he said that. He said, don't eat of that tree, knowledge of good and evil. So he started with a seed of doubt, and then he told her a direct lie, and he said, you will not surely die. And he lied to her. And in that same way, we sometimes believe that God might be keeping something good from us by restricting sexual enjoyment to our marriage or by restricting us to our own marriage. So sometimes people look outside their own marriages, they peek over the fence, and they look to see, is the grass greener over there? I, uh, I if you've ever been to my house, I, I love grass. This is called a metaphor. 
I love grass. Um, I love mowing my lawn. I love watering my lawn. I love April and May in Spokane, my, my yellow tundra-like lawn after eight months of winter in Spokane starts to come alive. I love turning on the sprinklers. And the first time I get to mow my lawn, it's like a, a millimeter of grass is there, but I still love mowing it. I love seeing the uniformity of all the cut of the grass. I love feeding it and fertilizing it and seeing it come to life. It's like a carpet of green goodness just walking on that thing. I want you to come over and walk on my lawn and feel how good it feels. But when we get beyond that initial part of the spring and into the summer, the the hot months of summer, if I start neglecting my own lawn in the heat of the summer, if I stop watering it, if I stop feeding it, if I stop nourishing it, that beautiful green lawn starts to turn yellow. And it's sad. And if I keep neglecting it, that yellow starts to turn kind of hard and crunchy. It even kind of gets hard to walk on. It even gets a little painful to walk on. So I look over the fence, and I look to my neighbor's grass, and, oh, that grass looks good. It's green. It's lush. He's even got a John Deere tractor on that lawn, a green tractor on a green lawn. It's even more beautiful. And all the while, I'm neglecting my own lawn. It's called a metaphor. You see, the grass isn't greener on the other side of the fence. It's greener where you water it. And this type of thought process is similar to what we see on that slippery slope toward adultery. We aren't to consider how great his wife is or how great her husband is. We're not to consider how much, how much nicer it would be if I had the marriage that I'm seeing in that movie, what Hollywood's showing me. We're not to consider that. We are to cherish our own spouse and we're to ch- nourish our own marriage and feed it. One of the things I've learned about grass I'm still on grass for a little, a little bit longer. Is that most of the time when it's yellow, it's not dead. It's just dormant. It's gone to sleep because it hasn't been nourished. And if you feel like you're walking through a season of marriage where it's like, gosh, this marriage, it feels dead. It feels dormant. It's not dead. You just need to start feeding it and nourishing it and investing in it. And before you know it, it'll probably spring back to life. So God told the Israelites to not commit adultery. It's bad for you, your spouse, your marriage, your kids, your church. And it's a poor way of carrying my name, God's name, in the world and in your marriage. Don't commit adultery. But Jesus, let's turn back to Matthew 5, 27. Jesus, again, takes us beyond the letter of the law and deeper into the heart of the law, actually into my heart and your heart. And it says, verse 27, you've heard that it was said, don't commit adultery. Yep, preach, Jesus. 
No murder, no, no adultery, I got this down. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. And he wasn't like trying to make everybody feel guilty here. He's just trying to make people live a full life. And if you're reading this today and you're like, gosh, I feel guilty, God doesn't want you to feel guilty. He wants you to live fully. And living with a lustful heart, giving in to that, is not living fully. Can you imagine what these religious leaders thought when Jesus said, you're basically committing adultery? How dare you, Jesus? How dare you accuse me of adultery? The Pharisees were there. The, Sadducees, the, the religious leaders who were keeping the letter of the law probably got a little upset with Jesus on this. You shall not commit adultery is true. But if you're allowing sexually explicit content in front of your eyes and into your heart, please understand that that's called sin. And God doesn't want you to have that. Doesn't matter if it's on your phone. Doesn't matter if it's on your TV. Doesn't matter if it's on the DVD or the Blu-ray. Think there, is that, do we still have Blu-rays? Is that still a thing? Streaming, whatever. Whatever you're getting this on. If it's lustful, if it's lustable, put it away. Or if you have this kind of ongoing emotional longing for something that's not your spouse and you're dwelling on it, it's porneia. Get rid of it. Jesus says that that's the spirit of adultery and, and that's sin. And there's only, only one solution for sin. It was Jesus' death on the cross. That was the only solution for sin. There's only one response that you and I have or should have as Christians when we have that. It's that you and I bow our hearts before the Father and we ask in humility, God, please forgive me. Please forgive me. James 5.16 says, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you might be healed. Pray for one another. And you got to be around one another, like-minded one another's, in order to be able to pray for one another or be prayed for by one another. So you can't be a hermit. you got to be around other believers that are having conversations, that are looking to God's word. Then we can pray for one another. 1 John 1.9 says, If we confess our sins, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and he's just just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. I was in our small group a, a little while back. I think Ryan was there probably a couple of years ago, and it, it just kind of hit me. It had been a while since I confessed anything. I thought, well, that's not right. I know I sinned this week. <laughs> probably sinned the week before. What's going on? Like, I got to start confessing what's on my heart. There's sin. 
If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Do you know the term uh, that the Old Testament prophets used to describe the wholesale rebellion of God's people against God in the Old Testament? You know the word that they used? Adultery. It was described as just their turning their back on God. We see it in Hosea. We see it in Ezekiel. We see it in Jeremiah. My people have turned their back on me. The Bible calls that. God calls it. The prophets called it adultery. You see, you and I want to look at the letter of the law, but God is saying, if your heart has been turned from me, turn back. Kind of sounds like all of us at some point, doesn't it? Anybody ever had their, their back turned on God? I know I have. Even after I accepted Jesus into my heart, there were seasons where I turned my back on God, and I had to come back and confess and repent and turn around. The Bible teaches that if you haven't confessed Jesus as Lord, that your back is turned on God. And it's that simple. It says that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. It says there's nobody that's righteous, not even one. So even if there was some way to earn our way to heaven, even if that's how it worked, like you got to check the boxes and earn your way to heaven, Paul says even if that was the case, we'd all fail. Because there's nobody that's righteous without God. It says that for the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. God made a way for you and me to have eternal life, and his name is Jesus. So I have one question. Do you know Jesus? Do you know him? Have you accepted him in here as your personal Lord? Not your, not your parents' Lord. Not do you know about him. The Bible says Satan knows about God. Satan knows about Jesus. That didn't do anything for him. Is he your personal Lord and Savior? And if you haven't decided yet to follow Jesus as your personal Lord and Savior, you're going to have a chance to do that today. We're going to pray together here in a second. If you haven't done that, if you can't look back on your life and say, that was when I decided to follow Jesus. Doesn't matter what mom and dad did. Doesn't matter what my siblings did. If you didn't make that decision to follow Jesus for yourself, God wants you to follow him. God wants your heart. He wants to have a relationship with you. And if he says that if you confess me as Lord, if you, if you accept me into your heart as your personal Savior, I'm going to give you new life. It's not going to always be easy, but you're going to have a new life, and you'll have new power over sin and temptation, and you'll have power to walk in a way that glorifies me in the world. So let's bow our heads today.